What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, you know what? It's a new month. Is it? Yeah, it is. And I'm thinking to myself that we should probably have something like a month called Support Our Supporters. Support Our Supporters? Support Our Supporters. We've got some people who support our show. Yeah. And I want to show them some love. Okay. Yeah. So we've got someone who is regularly supporting our show, who's the industry buffet himself, Jason mm-hmm. Furman mm-hmm. from Einswick Dog Quip. Einswick Dog Quip. Yeah. I know you're a fan of Jason's equipment. You know what? Sometimes I get these ideas in my head. Mm-hmm. Let's go I'm with like, that. Jason, with I've got this idea for a tug and I want it to be this big and this round and made of leather. Yep. You got one? He goes, no, it doesn't exist, you idiot, but I can get it made. I go, do it, sir. He's pretty good like that, the old buffet, isn't he? Yeah. We should get Teespring. The buffet. The <laughs> Teespring merch made up. <laughs> Support the buffet. Support the buff. Yeah. But we've got people in other parts of the world that are Yeah, you know who's show? not a buffet? Tell me. Mac Lapointe. Mac Lapointe is French for Mark. For not a buffet. Yeah, for not a buffet. And he is from? Canine Dynamics. Canine Dynamics. In Canada. Yep. Please don't slow this one down. <laughs> <laughs> so if I were in North America, that's where I'd be getting my, yeah. my working dog equipment from. He's got a great array of gear as well. He does. Yeah. Yep. And he's a very generous guy. Yeah. Mm. You know who else is a supporter of the show? That would have to be Kindred Canine. Mm. Mel Benware. Our good friend Mel Benware. She has got to be one of the best travel to your home, train the dog in your home dog trainers. Absolutely. In the area that she's in, which Richmond, is- Richmond, Virginia. <laughs> Or Ashland, Virginia. She yeah. comes from Ashland, Virginia, but she services all the area around there. She's been a great support for the show and also a great support for the International Association of Canine Professionals. That's right. Who we are proud members of as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you're in Australia and you need dog equipment, mm-hmm. Jason Furman. Einswick Dog, dog Equip. Yep. Einswick Dog Equip. Einswick. If you're in North America, you yep. need working dog equipment, Mark LaPointe. <laughs> <laughs> Canine Dynamics. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're in Ashland, Virginia, yep. or Richmond, Virginia. Yep. In that general area. Yep. And you need pet dog training. Melanie Benway. Melanie Benway. Kindred canine. Kindred canine. Yep. That's it. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And today, joining us all the way from the US of A is the Prez. From Ashland. Ashland, Virginia. Ashland, Virginia. Yeah, we said it so many times on our little ad at the front. (laughs) Yeah. Ashland, Virginia. Well, we only said it once on the ad. Is it the train (laughs) state, Mel? The little town is known for little train stations. So it's, for whatever reason, the people here are obsessed about the trains. Yeah. And they come in video trains coming through town. <laughs> I've heard it tooting from your house when I was dying in your lounge room. You can hear it all the, all the time. Yeah. 
An old Glenn had the Rona over there. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Whatever I had, it was, well, well I think it was Hovid 20. Hovid? Yeah, yeah I got it from Nelson Hodges. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Hey, Mel, what's going on? What's news? What's happening in your part of the woods? Staying busy. I got really lucky through all of this, and I haven't talked a lot about it because, you know, I know that there's people out there that are suffering, but my homeschool program was perfectly designed for a pandemic. Mm -hmm. So other than closing down for a couple of weeks to figure out how I needed to, what and if I needed to change anything, I've been business as usual since and booking out into March now. Wow. Like I was messaging Glenn that I need to find a few more trainers in this area that I can refer to because pushing puppies out into training until six or seven months of age really isn't ideal. Mm. But I refuse to overbook myself, so it is what it is. See, you you do one ad on the canine paradigm and boom. (laughs) (laughs) Worth every penny. (laughs) So let's recap who you are. Because when was the last time you were on? That was like a year and a half ago? Yeah, yeah, it would have been that. Yeah, yeah. I think it was back before you were the president or you're about to become she, the president. Yeah, she just taken over, yeah. Yeah, I was president. It was right before the 2019 conference. Mm-hmm. So you yeah. are president of the IACP. How long have you been in that job and how long have you got to go? This will be the end of my second year as president, six years on the board, and then I just got reelected, so I've got two more years to go. Wowza. Yeah. Are you liking it? Do you enjoy being the press? I do like it. It's made me grow in a lot of different ways. It's taught me a lot about myself and strengths that I didn't know I had. And then, you know, the board we have this year has been phenomenal. And I'm really looking forward to the new directors we have coming on and some of the projects we have going. So it's, it's an interesting time to be president because there is so much going on. And we have some really hardworking committees. So it's been really neat. I'm enjoying it. We're going to talk about more stuff to do with you and your business, but I I am interested in your responsibilities as the president. And I think that a lot of people certainly will, we hope, and we've been trying to get as many of our listeners to go, you know, and join the IACP as possible. And I think that it's worth people understanding that it's a volunteer organization, right? Like, so when people are, you know, there'd be hot topics and people want a response from the organization immediately And I think lately, certainly what we've seen a couple of, you know, with big ticket items, like whatever shop it was, no longer selling e-collars and stuff like that. Like people want, people want to hear from the ISCP today and they don't understand, like, that's probably not, not only is that not a good move, but it's actually probably not possible. So tell us a little bit about that. Like what is the role of the president really do day to day? And and tell us like, how many hours a week are you putting into that? And tell us about your enormous salary package of $0 that, that you, (laughs) (laughs) that you get for that output. I probably don't want to stop and think about how many hours a week. I mean, even just today I did, I was on the phone interviewing people for a potential job. I mean, I talked to home office every day. And then between following up with the different committees, anytime there's a grievance or a complaint or working with sponsors, I've had phone calls with sponsors. Martin Dealey used to keep track of all of our sponsors and everything. And now we've transitioned that role to Jeff Scarpino and Dana in home office. So it's become a every aspect of the organization I'm involved in, in one way or another. So it went from being something that I thought was only going to require 10 hours a month, which is what all the, you know, it says that's all the directors are responsible for doing, but it's just, it's morphed into something. Part of that's good because it's growth, right? Is that 
it means that we're doing something right if I'm this busy. And if the committees are this busy and our directors are this busy, it does mean that we're doing something right. But it's, <laughs> it's a lot of work, more than I thought it was going to be when I first signed up for it. But it's, it's been good. But you've signed up again, so you, you, you're managing it. You- I know. <laughs> Considering the amount of time that I know that you and I dialogue over just various things to do with board work and the futures of what we're doing and the role in the European Committee and so forth, I can't even begin to think of how much you're working across the board with all the other directors because, you know, there's, well, how many other directors are there? There's like eight other people or something like that on the board. So if you think of the time that we're talking and then you're talking to everybody else, that's a monstrous effort. Yeah. And I mean, I'm lucky that with the way my work is structured, I have more time than someone else might that was running their own business. So it, it was sort of perfect timing when Tyler was coming off of his presidency and me stepping into the role. I also happened to start a business the same year I started being the president. But with my business model, it just it afforded me a lot more time than I think most people might have had. So. It's, mm. it's worked out. It's just there's been moments where it has been stressful. <laughs> and like to your point, Pat, is like things like the Petco stopping the sale of electronic devices. I understand people's want for a gut reaction and just to get out there and fire and, you know, shoot from the hip. But one, that's not my personality. And I think the best way to approach things that are emotionally driven like that is to collect a cool head and approach it from a more logical standpoint than an emotional standpoint. Mm. And sometimes that, you know, because it was upsetting. So even for me, so I needed to take a moment to breathe and formulate a response that was going to come across educated and respectful and not emotional Mm. because they were taking the emotional road and it was not evidence-based. Yeah. So I think that's one of the interesting things, like certainly I've observed since being a member of the IACP and sort of uh, being on that legislative committee, kind of having a little bit of a of a window into how the, the board works, though not being on the board, but having a, a reasonable understanding of it, is I think certainly I've noticed some people get frustrated by the time that things can take to get done. You know, like, and say to use an example of in the past, there's been members that have, say, problems have been pointed out about them and everyone wants an immediate response because you as an individual can say and do what you want. And you really only, you know, of course you're opening yourself legally to anything that, you know, could come of that, but that's you and your responsibility. Whereas I think uh, some people don't necessarily know that, you know, there's, there's rules about how these things have to go within an organization and organizations like the IACP and all the others move slowly and carefully because they're not just beholden to the individuals that, that would say these things, then it's the organization and it's, it's the people that it represents. So like as an individual, you can get online and say, fuck this guy or fuck these people and do whatever you want. And you get to do that with relative impunity because you represent yourself. And it's unlikely that that big organization or that person is going to come after you as an individual. But as a organization like the IACP, all responses to everything have to be very measured and calculated because if Melanie Benware decides I'm going to come out and say, fuck you to any person or or organization, and she does that as the president, then she does that on our behalf. And maybe the representatives don't feel that the, that the people she represents doesn't don't feel the same way, or she opens not just herself to 
liability, but opens all of us to to liability. So uh, that's one of the things I wanted to sort of just sort of point out while you're on the show and have a like a discussion about that. And I guess thank you for your level head in that in that space and and sort of give people a perspective of understanding like how these things actually roll. Like the board has to get together, they have to agree on these things, they have to go through the bylaws, make sure are we actually allowed to take this action that we want to take, or what's the process we have to go through, blah blah blah. Right. And it's it is we have, you know, roughly twenty five hundred members relying on us to make decisions for them. And you can't please everybody. That's impossible. But we owe it to them to make smart choices so that this organization stays strong, continues to grow versus, you know, it could be one legal action. If we make if we make a wrong move with, say, a grievance or a complaint, we could bring down the whole organization. Mm. One of the things that going off what Pat was talking about before in the time that I've got to know you on the board. I mean, you and I have become quite close friends. And one of the things that I've enjoyed most about that is that you always exercise a very high degree of integrity in everything you do. Like you don't compromise your position or, you know, like you don't put our friendship or our board work in front of the job that needs to be done. And it's one of the things I've admired greatly about you is that you do put yourself in a position where you understand the integrity and the the professionalism and certainly the responsibility of your role. And I mean, look, I've, I've been in positions with other people where, you know, like it has been a bit of an old boys club. I think things have changed a lot. There's a lot more transparency in the way people conduct business. I mean, there's still room and openness for corruption in certain things. And that certainly falls to an individual's behavior or or a group's behavior. But the one thing that I really liked and I appreciate and admire about you, Mel, is that you don't put yourself in that position and you haven't put me in that position as well. And we've still been able to enjoy a great level of friendship, have some very funny and great chats. And, you know, when it's primarily, I guess, like my relationship with Maria and Dave, who own the company I work for, you know, we're the best of friends, but when work comes to work, we have difficult conversations that we need to have. And we always make sure that there's a divide between our friendship and the work that we need to do. And I've enjoyed that same level of respect and friendship from you as well. So I guess in a nice way, it's me saying, I really appreciate you. Thank you. I do. I appreciate that. And it, I think it goes back to when I was asked to be on the board six years ago, You know, there are quite a few people on the board that I was friends with and I developed friendships with. And, you know, I made it one of the things I said was that I'm not a yes man, that I can be your friend all day long, but I will set that friendship aside to do what I think is right for the organization. Now we are director driven, right? So I can come up with a gazillion good ideas and maybe some shit ones too, but it's, it ends up becoming, what does the board think? What's the majority of the board? So I wanted, for me, it's very important to be able to draw that line between friendship because I have made some wonderful friends being on this board. Like I consider Tyler Muto a close friend. Maylee, who's coming off the board now is just a remarkable friend, but I have to separate those two. And it's something that is very important to me to be able to separate a personal relationship from what is a non-paying working relationship. Mm-hmm. Here's a question for you because we just I just pointed out how you have to be careful of representing the blah, 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 blah. But I want your personal opinion. What's your vision for the IACP? Like where do you see that going? Not you, the president, but you, Mel Benware. Like in 10 years, what would you like to the IACP to be? I would like to see us, if not double in size, triple in size, 
and not just in North America. I would love to see our numbers grow in Europe, in Asia, in Australia, and actually become, I mean, we are an international organization, but there's no denying that right now our numbers are predominantly in North America. So for me, I would love to see that growth because we all know that the legislative side of things is something that is going to continue to grow. And for us to actually make a bigger impact within these governments, we have to, you know, let's say, and I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, so I'm pulling these numbers out of the air, but let's say we only have three members in Poland and the legislative committee drafts a letter because they're trying to ban a tool. And I send a letter saying that we have members all over the world, three of them in Poland. Do they really care about us? So for me, that's it, is I would love to see us grow internationally more, which is why like the committee that Glenn's on for the European Members Committee is so important. And it's a hardworking group of people that have that same vision. I'd like to see us start bringing in more working dog people. And we're slowly bringing in yes. more. Yes. <laughs> we're slowly seeing more military and working dogs coming in. And I think a part of that is going to have to deal with our conferences, you know, like is having speakers that are interesting to not just the pet dog world, but also the working dog world or a speaker who can also talk on like, I love scent work and there is a way to bring scent work into the pet dog home. Mm -hmm. And if we could get a speaker that spoke on scent work from a working dog perspective, but then also how learning a little bit about scent work can also be brought into the pet dog world, like teaching a family with a beagle that all three kids are a different scent and they can run around in the yard, leaving their essential oil scent behind and the dog tracks their kid. Like, I mean, tracking, when I did tracking, that was the first time I learned that a dog can lie. Like, <laughs> you know, I, that dog wasn't on that trail or on that track anymore. And it was the little little tells in its body language, the tail dropping or that the pace that slowed down just a little bit, but that the dog was lying. It was, it wanted me to think that it was on that track. Mm -hmm. So even just those sort of things that I learned more about dog body language and communication from the time that I did tracking bite work, narcotics detection, I learned more that's helped me in the pet dog realm. So I think that if we can help some pet dog people understand that you may never want to put on a bite suit, you may never want to participate in PSA, but there's a lot you can learn about dogs just by even going and watching trials from talking to other people. So I'd like to see that area strengthen as well. Mm, good answer. Mm. I like that. <laughs> yeah, that's what I would love to see with the ISCP is, is growing more and bringing in a lot of the sport and working dog people. And I think the problem is, you know, people, there's all these organizations and people are in that. And yeah, it's, people have limited money that they're prepared to put into paying to join organizations. And I think part of our role in the ISCP and, and those on those boards and committees is to tell people what we're actually doing in the background because they don't realize that we are actually supporting them whether they're members or not, but we're able to give right. them better support. Yeah, and it's purely, as you said, when we say when we go to a legislator and say, hey, we have this many people in your area that are, you're influencing and we represent, when that number is a pathetic number, then it's like, oh, well, fuck off. Right. But when it's right. when you go like, hey, actually, you know, there's 6000 people that have votes for you and we represent them, then that that gives us some more pull. So, yeah, that's that would be amazing. I reckon if we could bring in more working dog and sport dog people. It's not only that either. It's the financial aspect of it as well, because there's a lot of people yeah. who want action taken like they want 
a member to be somewhere and represent, but there's only so much money that's available to do that, yeah. you know, and that, that also means that the ICP needs to look into subsidising people to actually go and do and be representing because you're giving up a whole week of your time yeah. to go to some of these other conferences and seminars that are on or represent or go to court or whatever it needs to be. And I did this post over a year ago in the, the Canine Paradigm where I talked about how organisations like PETA bring in 50-something million dollars every single year. And I think of the 54, let's say 54 million, they spend like $53 million just in marketing, advertising, and in yeah. salaries and so forth, you know, where the ISCP would make just a pittance of that, an absolute pittance of it, you know, and every dollar is scrutinized, everything is gone over, everything is is calculated, you know, so we can bring back education and conferences for members and so forth, but there's only so much money that's available in the pool. And people say, well, how do we increase that? Memberships. It's got to be through membership drives. Mm. You know, people have got to be more actively involved. Like you said before, Pat, we still represent the people anyway, but if they want more from that, if they want more blood from the stone, then they've got to be a contributing factor. There's no point sitting back and saying, I want more, I need more, we should be doing this and we should be doing that. And you're not a fucking member. Yeah. I mean, guys, seriously, if you're listening to this and you're not an ICP member and you want the ICP to do more, that's quite outrageous because you really need to be part of the solution. You are actually being part of the problem. I know it's a COVID year and I know people are, are tied on money and I'm not, I'm not pointing the bone at people who are and have been suffering. You know, Melanie, you started off talking about this when you first got on the interview and you said, you know, I feel really bad for saying that you've been successful during this time. And it kind of sucks where you some people have been successful, then they've kind of like, oh, now I can't really celebrate it because I feel bad for other people that haven't done so well. But there are people out there who are still doing well that still aren't members. Mm. And for the people who aren't doing well, get on board. Support an organisation that ultimately tries its hardest to support all of us in the balanced community. Mm. And to date, the reason that we're both actively involved and we get up and in the middle of the night or stay awake or later hours and so forth is because we believe in this organization. To date, it's the best one that we've actively been involved in. It represents our interests. It represents the interests that we see as being the greater good. And it is something that's truly trying to be international. It's trying to expand itself into all territories and all nations so you know we can equally represent the people in our interest and our activities on a broad spectrum. I can't think of a better organization myself to date. I think it's one of those chicken or the egg things as well. Mm. Like a lot of people say like, oh, what's the ISCP doing? Like, why would I join? It's like, well, we kind of need you to join for us to do more stuff. Yes. Right. So it's like, if you're going to sit back and wait and see, I want to see the ISCP do all these amazing things and then I'll join. It's like, well, we kind of can't do it until you have, right? Like we need that. It's got a, there's a sequence in things you know, the sequence of things has to go a certain way, yep. but, but certainly it's not as though we're doing nothing. I mean, there's plenty of people working hard, but all as a volunteer basis, it would be amazing to have a, a full-time person who's, who is the face of the ISCP and goes to every conference and really knows their shit and can talk on behalf. You know, that would be, that would be spectacular. And hopefully that's on the, on the horizon one day in the future. One day. <laughs> well, and I think another way that people I don't think a lot of our members know that we have an affiliate level. So that's for your clients, right? Like if you've helped their dog and they're happy with what you're doing and they want trainers like you to be able to continue to use tools, to be able to continue to be successful, 
we can encourage our members to join the IECP at an affiliate level Mm -hmm. and they don't get a vote. So there's no way that pet people are going to influence the outcome of what happens with this organization. But that's a revenue generator for us. And it gets our name out and about within the pet population, which is important, right? Because those are the people that PETA and some of the other organizations are targeting and they sort of hijacked the word humane. Mm. Right. And because of that, they can target the pet population or the pet owning population from an emotional standpoint. Well, but so can we. And so the more affiliate members that we get, that is very helpful for the organization. And I think with hopefully next year, we'll be able to roll out our therapy dog evaluator and therapy dog handler team, which will also bring in um, more knowledge from a pet owning perspective. So I think that's a good option for growth for the organization as well. Yeah. Owning that education piece is so hard when you're fighting against the emotionally driven welfare topics. You know, so in my own day-to-day life, I mean, I live in the inner West in Sydney. So I'm in like a a Facebook group of inner West pet dog owners, right? So it's just pet dog owners. And if you want to, you know, really, you know, cause a, a stir in there, it's asking about, you know, what kind of trainer should I go to? And people like, the ethics pieces really hammer down people's throats, right? But the education piece is not. And that's what I think the real strength is of ISCP is that, you know, the, the foundation is in education. And so it's that difficult conversation having that with people where like, yeah, it's important to love your dogs and it's important to treat them ethically and all those sorts of things, but you're not actually doing that. Like you think you are by spoiling him rotten and, and <laughs> but this anxiety that your dog is displaying is actually caused by you, right? And that's the hard fucking conversation to have, especially in the pet dog world, right? Like outside of trainers, like just in, I'm just a group that, you know, there's like 4,000 people in that Facebook group, right? 4,000 pet dogs dog owners and maybe 10 people in that group are dog trainers and probably eight of the 10 are really force-free kind of people. So Mm. there's, it's really difficult to have the conversation where you say to people like, yes, ethics are a hundred percent important. You must like, that is super important that the welfare of the dog is put above all else, but you're not actually doing that because dogs aren't furry children, right? Like they're it's a different thing. We have to treat them in a particular way. And, you know, all these anxiety problems, that's the big one that I see in that group, like every day is all the anxiety problems that people have. I'm like, oh, actually you don't realize, but you're causing that. Right. And as a trainer, (laughs) I can see that thousand miles away and I can diagnose that, but it's not so warm and fluffy. You're not going to want to donate to me when I'm the one giving you difficult information. <laughs> Whereas if I'm like, no, you're hundred percent on track, just medicate that dog. It'll feel better. Like then that's the person you want to hear from. Oh, can I give you money? You, you said the things I wanted to hear. <laughs> it is incredible hearing people belch out such irony on such regular platforms. Probably a couple of years ago, there was a colleague that I was talking to about what Narelle was doing in, in regards to her natural therapies and how she was sort of changing her landscape from being corporate science into more of a natural platform. And they were saying to me, oh, you know, look, I think all that is hoodoo guru. You know, it's a bit of it's a bit of nonsense, you know, like it doesn't really work. And I believe in the backings of science and really sort of, you know, like I was quite surprised that. I considered this person like on a friend level and they were really sort of giving me a belt up about the fact that Narelle was going into a natural profession. The remarkable thing was this same person switched to being a vegan. 
Now, all of a sudden, all of their posts were how all of a sudden fruit and vegetables are saving their life and they're so much feeling so much better and, you know, their skin is glowing and their hair's great and their nails are growing. And I'm thinking you're the same person who just finished telling me what a piece of shit I am because I was, I was talking about what my wife is now representing and yet you're on the landscape now of telling everybody how a natural health style is helping you. I guess the irony that I laugh about that is I see the same people in dog circles. Like they talk themselves around how they need to do this and only this sort of trainer will help them and they'll offer them the salvation they need with their dog. Yet they're the same people who will go through five dogs. You know, they'll literally rehome or suddenly the dog vanishes off the face of the earth. Yet they think they're doing the right thing by dogs and dog ownership by saying that anybody involved in balanced training is a monster and then they don't understand what they're doing. People's irony around the world is just incredible. I don't think they really look at what they're doing or saying or recommending to other people. They're just talking rhetoric and they're regurgitating nonsense they're hearing their friends say on the internet. But I think like my example there, you know, I did say that most of the people in the group are sort of force free, but it doesn't, it's just training in general. Like Mm. because overwhelmingly most of the posts that you see from pet dog owners who just, you know, love their pets is Anybody with any sort of level of training acumen, if for dog training, would say, "Oh no, 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 that's that's not right. Like mm. you're doing the wrong thing." No matter no matter what side of the fence you sit on, on force free, balanced, whatever. It's it's just that that's I think a big function that we as trainers could be trying to give to our clients to say, like you know, tell your friends about this because you've had this issue eventually got to the point where you just couldn't cut all the problems away and you've employed a trainer no matter where they're from. But now tell your friends that you know, there's more to it than just considering that you're spoiling your dog. Like, like you can't just love this problem away. You need to, yeah. you need to actually take steps and change to change behavior and that kind of stuff. And, yeah. and that education piece to the average person, because it's just, you know, we've discussed it a million times. I think that average person is getting further and further away from being able to manage just a normal dog in their Mm, home, right? Like, because, because we're, we're living in a really different society. We treat things really, really different. And part of that is the programming of organizations like Peter that are going to tell you that like you wouldn't, you know, it's the classic, they try and compare a pig that you're going to eat to a baby, right? Like Mm. that's one of the big things of Peter as a human baby. And it's like, Hey, that is not the same thing, right? Like, and, and that programming while extreme causes a leak down to the same as, well, then my dog, I should treat exactly the same way as I would treat a baby. And it's like, well, you should treat him like a puppy because he is one. Mm. He is not a baby and they are different things, right? They come out differently. And there's, there's a million evolutionary topics we could talk about that, right? Like there's, it's a totally different species. You got to treat them differently. You can't, you can't treat that bird the same way you treat that dog and you can't treat that dog the same way you treat that, that human. It's a, it's a different process. They, Mm. They have different needs, Ugh. Anyway, that's my rant. And hence why we're in the position of more multifaceted problems that we're seeing around the world. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Mel, you had some other topics that you wanted to talk to us about as well in relation to success in business and what that's like and how you can remodel and restructure your business to better suit your lifestyle. Yeah. So, you know me, I don't, I'm not a fan of the spotlight. So when I started getting this feeling to even ask you guys if I could come on, I knew right away that it was clearly something that it felt important to me or I wouldn't I wouldn't have been willing to do this because I, I like working from behind the scenes. I don't necessarily like to be the one in front of the camera or in front of the mic. 
But, you know, after Tyler came on and Misha and then Birdie, you know, I've been there. I worked for one of the, probably one of the largest kennels in the United States. The facility that I worked at could house close to 400 dogs. And I was the only trainer. And I did it for 10 years where I was running a board and train program and we had a day training program. And I had 15 to 20 dogs a day by the time I finished working for them in my program. And I was exhausted. I wasn't giving it my all. I mean, the dogs were still getting good training, but it wasn't the best of me. I didn't even know some of my clients' first names. They were just Dusty's mom mm-hmm. because I, there was, I didn't have the brain capacity for it, but I didn't know of a better way. Like everything I was seeing, and I was an IACP member at the time, but everything I was seeing was, okay, go out on your own, start your own facility, you know, everything that required this huge amount of overhead, but it was also the more I kept looking at it, it was going to require more work than what I was doing at the kennel. Because at least at the kennel, I worked Monday through Friday and I went home on the weekends. It was 80 hours a week, Monday through Friday, but I went home on the weekends. If I started my own business and had a facility, I knew in the back of my mind that there was no way I was going to be working less. And then we just got lucky. Jason's job took us to Ireland and that was it. Like that was my restart. You know, I was able to get back into nature. I was hiking all the time. Jason and I got into scuba diving. And then within a year, I started volunteering at the Dublin SPCA. I mean, I just walked in as some nobody off the street, told them nothing about my background. Like I, I was not a trainer as far as I was concerned. I was not a board member for the IACP. I was just there to scoop some shit and walk some dogs. Mm-hmm. And I reconnected with dogs. Like I was able to have fun with them again because I wasn't burnt out. And, you know, the Dublin SPCA is, is unique in the fact that it's in the Dublin mountains. So if you were taking a dog for a walk, it was a lovely place to be walking some dogs. So during our time there, I was able to really think about what was important to me and why I got into dog training in the first place. I never got into it to get rich. I got into it to help some dogs because I had trainers that couldn't help me with my dog when I was the pet owner. And so I had that time to be able to rethink and build a new business model that no one I knew was doing. I hadn't heard of it before, but I just had this feeling I could make it work. I came back, hit the ground running when we moved back to the United States. Within a month of moving back to the U.S., my business was fully booked two months out, and it has not slowed down since I started. But I'm working far less hours, making more than I was when I was killing myself at the kennel, and I still have time for my dogs, my husband, when Rona, well, actually we are going scuba diving at the end of this month. So I'm finally getting back in the water for the first time in a year. And my chickens, I have time for my chickens. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So like, it's just one of those things that I thought that if I could come on and talk about my business model and how it was able to help me and my clients that it might be able to show someone that even if it's just one listener that is like, you know what, I'm going to give this a go. Or maybe there's a listener that was like me that was burnout, but it was so, there was a level of comfort and security working for a facility that had been around for 40 years. Mm. I didn't have to worry about bringing clients in because they were so well known. And by the time, you know, I'd been there for 10 years by the time I left. So I had a reputation of my own that 
I didn't have to worry about marketing, advertising, whether the electricity was being paid. I didn't have to worry about anything. I just showed up to work, killed myself working dogs, and then went home. So there was a level of security there that kept me there. So maybe there is someone listening that is like, you know what, I can step out on my own. And in this way, I'm able to do it where I have very little overhead. I have a van. (laughs) So tell us about it. What is your homeschool program? What does it look like? So I took our day school program that we had at a kennel, right? Where people dropped their dog off every morning, Monday through Friday, picked it up every night. And then on Friday, we had our lesson. They went home with homework. And so instead of that, like if you signed your dog up for training with me, it's going to be a minimum of a three-week program. And I come to your house five days a week, Monday through Thursday, you don't have to be there. So people are leaving me, you know, I have codes to get in their houses, garage codes, keys with Rona. There's a lot more people home, but I still, I mean, even then that Monday through Thursday, I'll say hi. And then I go off and work with the dog. Mm -hmm. So that gives me four days a week to help teach that dog what it's supposed to do. And I'm using it in their own environment, right? Like it's their house. It's their neighborhood. So if it's a reactive dog, I can walk the gauntlet that those parents struggle or that those owners struggle with, right? Those dogs in that neighborhood that are triggering that dog every day, I get to see those dogs and work through that and ask that neighbor, hey, do you mind walking with me here? Mm-hmm. So it, it just became something where it was the consistency and the level of skill that the clients were able to get when they were doing it at a facility, only it's in their home. And the beauty of it is now I'm, I have four dogs a week versus the 10, 15 to 20 that I was doing before. Mm-hmm. So I'm in the homes longer. I'm dealing with the clients longer. And I think there's an element of it where it's in their home and they can actually see their dog doing it in that environment that has had people. I have, I have a level of commitment from clients that I didn't get when I was working at the kennel. And again, it's Monday through Friday. I mean, so if we're talking, we'll say 15 years as a professional, and I've never worked a weekend. Like, <laughs> nice. nice work if you can get it. Mm. So tell us about so, that. So um, you, you, you said you only take four clients at a time. You do your, all your own marketing and everything, but you're probably at this point, word of mouth, everything I would imagine. And so four at a time, you travel to their home, you've got the keys, you go in there, you spend, how long do you spend with each dog? And do you tell the owners, I'm going to be there for an hour or I'm going to train the dog and when I'm done, I'm done. And that time, could it'll be what it is. Right. Yeah. So I do, I give them an idea of what time I'm going to be there. And then it depends on the dog. Mm-hmm. One of the day, just last week, I've got this sassy little skipper key puppy in training and the Thursday, I was only in that house for a half an hour. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I message the client when I'm on my way and I message when I'm leaving with an update on how they did, I send pictures and that sort of thing. And so the owner asked me, she said, you know, he was really naughty tonight. And I noticed you were only at the house for a half an hour. Was there any particular reason? And I was like, yeah, he was done. After 30 minutes, he turned into a little alligator and wanted nothing to do with training. So I no more, one more time, I put him in the crate and I walked away. And then we had a really good lesson like that because that was on the Friday when I showed up to do our lesson and they were able to see the results. So I don't try to make it that I'm going to be here an hour because if that puppy tells me he can only do a half an hour, we're done. Mm-hmm. I'm glad to hear you say that, Mel, because there's a lot of people out there in the training world 
that they think that an hour means an hour. And if it's something that I can expressly get through to anybody is that sometimes it might be five minutes and you're done. I've seen the girls pull dogs out of the kennels before, and we might have new managers in that are just taking over the resort. And they might say to me, I'm a bit concerned. I saw the girls bring the dog out and they were only out for five minutes and they put the dog away. And I said, those girls know how to read dogs. There's a reason and a purpose behind that. Like, you know, if it was another five minutes, it might be five minutes too long. It's not to say that the dog won't come out again because the dog might come out again in the afternoon. But sometimes the girls will say the longest part of the session is going in there and putting the equipment on the dog, walking the dog to a location. Or they might even say, I didn't even get the dog out of the kennel. I did the training session inside the kennel for that particular time because anything else. And I say, stop. You don't need to justify it to me. I know who you are and I know what your ethos is in training. And I know that, you know, for that dog, anything else would have been a waste of time. It is refreshing to see that people around the world are starting to get that. Like, I think one of the biggest problems, and I started out exactly the same way with this when I was a young pup in training and I was going out to do lessons. I was entertaining the fact that if you're doing a lesson with somebody, they booked you for an hour. It has to be a solid hour of dog training. I didn't realize at the time how detrimental that was to the dog and how much they were hating the session and I was hating the session. And it only became apparent to me. I think the No More One More Time really summarized a lot for me. I think when, you know, back in the day when we really started to digest that whole dichotomy, that we were looking at it and thinking, this has changed an entire platform of how we're thinking about training. And it's, it is nice to see other trainers doing that, where they're just saying, okay, that training session's done. So good to hear. Yeah. And I do things to try to a half an hour is short for my structure because I do come in and walk the dog first and mm. yeah, the dog's learning, but you know, if it's been in a crate, I'm letting it sniff and pee and potty and do its thing. So I can typically stretch it out to at least 45 minutes. Or if we do a little bit of brain games with, you know, commands that it's learning like sits and downs and that sort of thing, and then pause, do a little bit of tub work. Mm-hmm. working on bite inhibition and that sort of thing. And okay, are we ready to do some more sits and downs? Or can I incorporate the sits and downs into the tug and into the fetching that we're doing? So for the most part, I can I can get a good 45 minute session by giving the dog different types of breaks. But I, I have no problem at a 30 minute mark noticing that, hey, you know, this puppy is just never going to make it another 15 minutes. Yeah. You know, on the dog training side, I think that's something worth exploring because, you know, here when we we say no more one more time and we talk about five minute sessions and that kind of stuff. Right. And I think some people have misinterpreted that to literally mean like the way we were trained with our own dogs is we we don't do another session. Well, we Mm. interact with them for five minutes. Like it's like, this is the, this is it and it's over. And you know, like certainly when I've put like full training videos of everything I do, like the training component is usually about five minutes. Right. Mm. But that's just the piece of that new piece. And and it's one of the things, especially when people watch uh, my own dog train is like, if I slip the ball to him, it, like we're playing tug and he, I let go of it and he runs off and I let him pee. I let him poo like mid session. Right. And I let him flop on the floor and then he can sit there and that's him kind of concreting the things. You can see him like, I need this time out. I need this downtime. And then you can read in the dog as well. Like, okay, like you're ready to go again. And in my mind, that's kind of the next session. Mm. Like you can have multiple sessions within the one session. That's right. And when we say it's that no more, one more time, it's not like you do five minutes and then that's it. You put the dog up. It can be, you do five minutes 
30 times in a row. Like the session can go with the right dog. The session can go for four hours. You know what I mean? But this, it's not going to be a nonstop four hour thing. The dog gets a break. And, and so long as you're reading the dog and you go and let the dog go have their downtime and chill out, then that's fine. That, that's totally fine. Yeah, it's so long like as, going to the gym. Yeah, exactly. It's working on different body parts and just saying, okay, well, I'm done with biceps now. I'm going to move to legs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. And that's the same thing. It happens in the same session. And I think so long as you can read that in the dog, would something – because I just got some feedback recently where people were like, oh, you guys only train for five minutes and that's it for the day. What do I do with my dog the rest of the time? And it's like, no, no, no. Like I'll be teaching a new skill for five minutes. Yeah, it's the criteria. Yeah, but then I'm going to go and, you know, muck around with the dog and we're going to play. And one of the – I think one of the most powerful things you can do with the dog, and this is what I've got done recently with – you know, I've convinced people to do this who are very, you know, committed sport dog competitors is to walk out in the field and do one rep. Just tell your dog to sit or to enter the heel position. That's it. And then play with the dog for the next 20 minutes. So it's like no more commands. Don't even get him to out. Just play with him. If it's a Frisbee, just throw it back and forth, back and forth, back and forth until the dog's done. And like the huge amount of power that can have into the training where the dog's like, holy shit, that was one giant reinforcer for one behavior. And then the next session they come into it like, it's possible that that could happen, right? <laughs> now it's, you know, it's rare that you're going to do that, but it's got to have, you know, in order for a dog to believe that something could happen, it has to have at some time happened. Right. Mm. And so if you're going to convince a dog, this could be the ultimate reinforcer, it's his version of ultimate reinforcer is only a version that he has had in the past. He has to have had it in some point to want it again. Right. Anyway, we cut you off. Carry on. <laughs> no, that was good. Cause I, it is like, if people are going to do this, I mean, I guess you could be at a house for only 10 minutes, drive to the other three, come back around, but that's a lot of petrol. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of time in the car like versus if I can find a way to read the drive read the dog build drive or also notice like okay we've hit our capacity for your sits your downs your climbs your recall whatever it is that I'm teaching that's a new skill let's play for a little bit mm-hmm. because there is learning in play but now I've just brought the dog back up to where you're like okay are we ready to do this again so yeah. it's worked really well and you know, at the end of the day, if the clients are seeing the results that they want in their puppy, they don't care if I was there a half an hour, 45 minutes or an hour, their dog got one-on-one attention and is learning a skill. Mm-hmm. And in sessions like that, you can create the mindset you want to reinforce the behavior appropriately. Mm. Like, you know, if you're, if you're teaching them, say they know to sit to down and you're going to start reinforcing with the tug, you can do a bit of that at the start wear them out. And then when you, you got to teach them a place or, you know, to chill out on their bed, you teach them that at the point where doing that is self-reinforcing because they actually right. are sick of training. So that instead of it being like, go to the place in order to earn this target, it's like go to the place and actually chill out and really truly find it reinforcing just to be there rather than to be there in anticipation of reinforcement. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's worked out really well and you know, I don't do any advertising. I don't, I don't have an advertising budget. It's my van. Glenn's seen it has a big wrap on it that you cannot miss me driving down the road. And I vet referrals and client referrals. Other than that, like I don't spend a dime on advertising. I have this <laughs> the canine paradigm. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, but that's. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's sympathy dollars. She gives us that yeah. <laughs> through sympathy. No, points. it's my way of giving back to what you all are doing for the industry. Hey, so 
four at a time, right? And so you're only training four dogs a day, five days a week. And so you say on the Friday is where you expect that the owners are there and you're doing a session with them, doing a, a you know, I guess catching them up on what you've been doing the last four days, right? Correct. Yep. And that one, I schedule 90 minutes to two hours. Sometimes it only lasts an hour, right? Because when the dog dictates that, but mm-hmm. so do the people. Like, mm-hmm. If I am just, I don't want to overwhelm them with information, which is part of the reason why it's a three-week program is it's broken down so that they're slowly learning what the dog is learning. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I have clients that can only ha- handle an hour session. And then I have others that were pushing the two hour mark and I'm like, okay, well, I actually really do need to go to <laughs> my next house. But it's, it's one of those things too, with only working four dogs a week. And when I first started the program, I was working five and I quickly realized that between drive times and each individual dog and giving myself a slight break in between each dog, that five was just too much for me. It mm-hmm. might be okay for others, but for me, five was just too much. So I backed it down to four and that's been a good balance. And let's say it is a full two hours at each one of those people's houses and counting in drive time, that's still only an eight hour, an eight hour day. Mm. So yeah. to give you an idea of what tomorrow will look like, I'll leave my house between nine and nine 30 and I will do my grocery shop and be home by 3.30 or 4 o'clock. Killing it. Given, I mean, now granted, I'm still doing phone calls and emails in the morning, but it's given me time to also work on IECP in the mornings and in the evenings. But I no longer feel guilty. Like if I, Jason and I have been, we just binge watched the first season of The Undoing and I don't feel bad about it because I'm working really hard. I'm bringing in a good income. But if I want to sit there and binge watch a show on HBO, I'm going to binge watch a show on HBO. <laughs> That's important. Hey, so tell us about some of the challenges you might fight, face in this, right? So you know, someone calls you, they email you. What does your onboarding look like? Like what's the first interaction with the person? And then my follow-up to that or next part of that question, if you want to include in the answer is, do you struggle to convince people who don't know you other than that a referral from someone to get access to your house, right? Because it's your going into their home when they're not there. There's probably some right. procedural stuff around that. And also they're trusting you with their dog in their home. Like it's a lot of trust you're asking from people. So oh, yeah. how do you manage that? Part of it, it helps that I've been in this area for 15 years. So I have a name and a reputation that goes with that. And I've not given anybody a reason to not trust me going into their homes. I will say that I don't deal with human aggression. I don't think me walking in without a human, without their owner around, not just, I'm I'm just not going to do it. It doesn't, that part doesn't quite fit. I will work with some stranger danger, if we're going to call it that. Mm -hmm. And in that case, I do do a meet and greet first. Because I want to see, like, is the owner actually describing the behavior accurately or am I walking into a house with Cujo? Mm -hmm. And if I'm walking into a house with Cujo, they will get referred out because it's just not. Part of it is I don't want to spend the energy on it. And I know that might sound selfish, but I would rather help puppies set them up for success. I like working with fearful dogs, so I'd rather work with that. I'm being very choosy as to where I spend my energy. And so aggression like that just isn't where I want to put my energy. But most of the time now pre Rona, a lot of times the first time I met the people was their first Friday lesson, right? They left a key under the mat or they'd be like, okay, here's your garage code. The dog's in the crate, third door on the left. 
And I didn't meet the owner until Friday. Now there's more, and it still happens now, but most of the time, like right now, a lot of people are working from home. So they're there that first Monday to sort of show me around, or I will have people that want to be there the first day that will take off a work or ask me to plan that, you know, around their lunch break to come so that they can be there the first day. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, given my reputation is I have people giving me keys and codes to their house without ever meeting me. Now that might not work for everybody. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, You know, if you're brand new in an area, you may need to build a reputation at that point or have to do, I could see you needing to squeeze in evaluations or meet and greets ahead of time so that people felt, you know, got a feel for you, but I'm lucky to where I don't, I don't have to do that. Mm -hmm. And then Next question is price point, right? So I get that everywhere around the world, dog training has a different value, right? So we can't really, we kind of compare apples to oranges just by the the exact same service you're providing uh, in your city would be worth something else in a different city, right? More or less, it's quite different everywhere. It's really a cost of living, I think is how we set up for dog Mm. training expenses. But how do you compare then to a board and train? Like, are you the same price as what you would expect someone if they were going to that facility that you were working at? Is it the similar sort of thing? And then you don't have the overhead, so you're making much more money or are you charging right. less? I'm charging about the same. Well, it depends on which board and train. There's a lot of trainers in this area. So I'm charging about the same as some, but less than others. And part of it is one, I don't have the overhead. So I am, I'm, there's more revenue left over for me to take. But it's also looking back at why I chose this business model was that I wanted to get back to the passionate side of it, of helping that I didn't, I'm not cheap, but I could easily double my prices. I don't want it to be that only wealthy or posh people can afford good dog training. Mm -hmm. I want to be available that, you know what, if you may have to put me on your credit card, but it's not such an ouch that you're not willing to do it. Mm -hmm. So, and that's me. Like I, I just, it's just the road I took when I developed how much I was going to, honestly, the way I chose my price is I said, I want to make, I want to bring in X number of dollars a year. I scheduled myself five weeks of vacation and then four dogs a week. What do I have to charge to make that? Right. And that's how I came up right. with my price. Perfect. I just want to backtrack on something, Melanie, that you were talking about before, where you're talking about not feeling guilty for being able to binge watch things on Netflix and so forth if you wanted to do that. I have a lot of conversations with a lot of trainers about similar sort of subjects. You know, like I talk to a lot of NDTF students. I talk to people who listen to the show. Like they ask me things about this because they know of my extensive history in working with the pet dog market and so forth. Some of them are say to me, you know, like I've got into it, but I just feel like I'm working around the clock all the time. And, you know, like all my weekends are taken up in order to make things meet. And sometimes I try and help them the same way that we're having this conversation now where I'm trying to help them restructure their life and their business and just having a bit of a think about how they can do things differently and not feel like they're either so obsessed or so locked into something where they can't access other portions of their life, like important family time vacation time and just other interests that they have in their life. Because for me, I just don't want to have that single-minded obsession where all I'm doing is just locked into dogs. I did that once. I just didn't find that it was a very beneficial side 
ultimately in a holistic manner, it didn't really work out well. At the time, I thought it did. I really thought that that was the most important thing in my life to be locked into dogs, to be involved in, you know, like I had to be the best. I wanted to know everything. I wanted to be around, you know, like anybody who was doing anything differently. I just wanted to suck the marrow out of their bones. And I don't regret some of the things I did. You know, it was beneficial, but it also, in some aspects, it it made me unhealthy. I mean, I'm older now and there's, you know, things have changed. I'm in a different aspect in my life. But, you know, when I do talk to people, they are finding they're reaching burnout point very quickly. Like they just don't understand it. And they're saying, I thought I enjoyed it, but I don't know if I do. And I said, no, I think you can enjoy it. And I think you can find that you can live the best of both worlds where you can still give everything to your client, still enjoy the time with the dog, still enjoy time with your dog and fit a life in between all that without feeling like it's 24-7 around the clock. Fortunately, I have been able to help people do that. I mean, I don't live by those words so much now, especially when we had Rona pop in and ruin everything for us and we had to slot every single NDTF lesson that we could possibly do throughout the year, but we're changing that for next year, definitely. You know, like even Kana, my 2IC that helps me out with the NDT a lot, she said to me, can we please not do this next year because it was just too much? I said, oh, absolutely. I just didn't expect that things would pick back up again in the boarding sector. I thought we were going to have a really desperate year, which is why I thought, you know, this will be our salvation if we can if we can keep the student training going and so forth. But I do understand that when I see other people structuring their life in such a way where they really entrapped themselves or painted themselves in a corner, that they really need to model something differently so they can get back to the enjoyment of it because then they give a much better service to themselves, the client and the dog. Right. Well, and it's this is one of those professions where it is so easy for it to become every aspect of your life. Mm. Because you're training clients' dogs, then you're training your own dogs, then you get obsessed with a sport and you're doing the sport. And then, oh, we're going to go to the brewery and the brewery allows dogs. We're going to take our dog. Like It doesn't take much for it all of a sudden to be that there's not a moment of your life that doesn't have a dog in it. And it took me needing to find other hobbies, right? Like scuba diving, like that's been not only does scuba, like you're in a world of your own, right? Like it's even meditation. Not, yeah, it's, it's just remarkable. And it gives you time to think. It makes you focus on your breathing, all those types of things that meditation does do for you. Mm. But for me, it was also a reconnection with nature. I've always been a nature freak since I was a little kid, bringing home bunnies and squirrels and raccoons and all sorts of things. And I lost that, right? Because I became obsessed with dogs for a while. And by being able to reconnect back with nature and that side of things and not always have a dog with me, like there's times I take walks through my woods here and I don't take a single one of my dogs that I just go by myself. And I think maybe that that's why like what Birdie's doing right now with this new program she's rolling out has really spoken to me because it is about nature. And I think a lot of us get into dog training because dogs are our connection to nature. It's just one part of it that we can bring into our house every day. But I like the idea of dogs not being the only connection to nature that we have. Mm. And I think we each, you know, it's not going to be the same for everybody, but it's become very important to me to find a way to enjoy life without dogs. I've been thinking the whole time you're talking then about what you do that homeschool program versus board and train. And like, I think 
It's pretty common. A lot of people do that don't work in a big facility do you know small scale board and train three or four dogs in their home all the time, turning it over. And that can be really fun and and you know you can make a lot of money doing that because you know same deal, no overheads. You can legally do that from your home. You know, easy to do. But I feel like there's a component that's sometimes missing to that, and it's why when I've done that, like I I don't take dogs into my home unless there's a specific problem to fix, right? And it's usually, you know, like for me, it's usually working dogs that you know need something done to them, right? But I feel like a component of why the training that I do is successful is the way that I live with the dog also, and my dogs aren't just in a kennel, right? Like they they're part of the family and they're, they're in the kennel sometimes they're in the box sometimes, but they are part of like chill out on the couch and they're, they're part of it. And so their needs for that connection is met in one way. And then their needs for drive is met in another. Right. And I think sometimes the in-home board and train, while it's got loads and loads of advantages is that it's kind of impossible for you to give them that need that they have of just being your dog, right? And just being sort of the the non-training time. Because if you've got four dogs in your home, plus your own one or two or whatever, the, the, the board and train dogs come out, they do their work, and then they're really under that you know, management system because you're teaching them how to live in your home. So usually, as, you know, when I travel around and see people that do this kind of stuff, they'll have three dogs like tethered in their house. If they're not in crates, they're at least tethered and they're in different places. And yeah, they're being a part of the, the you, you can tell the dog has the feeling of like, I'm not in this family. I am a guest here and I'm learning how to live. And that's fine. It's not like it's a problem, but there's two issues with it. I think his first as the trainer, you get zero downtime, right? Like, because then you are at work 24 seven. There is not, if the dog, the second, that, and that's what I find stressful about bringing dogs into my home. Not stressful, but it's a, it's always in the back of my mind is now I am at work 24 seven. And you're is, responsible for that dog 24 hours. Yeah. Mm. There is absolutely, so long as that dog is with me, I am working 24 seven. And, and, you know, I charge a lot for people to, when someone wants me to take a dog, I, I charge a lot, but I consider that like you're basically paying my hourly rate for 24 hours because it is a lot of work for me because the reason you want me to have that dog is because you want a dog similar to mine. And my dog is the way he is because I treat him holistically. It's not the five minutes a day that turned him into that. It's the whole picture. And to provide that to your dog, I can really, that's a lot of work for me and I can only do that very limited numbers. But I think what you do allows the people to do that, right? So the dog gets to just be a dog all night and you just come in and provide like, hey, here's a training. I'm going to teach you the staff. I'm going to teach the people how to sort of connect with the dog and blah, blah, blah. But he probably still, if they're so inclined, he probably still gets to chill on the couch with them at night, right? And he still gets his like special cuddles from them and and his needs for that is met by them. And it means you get to binge watch Netflix at night and <laughs> and they can do that with the dog on the couch, right? And you get to do it with your dogs on the couch and they get to do it with their dog on the couch. And then the next day work hours, here I am, I'm going to do the training. I'm going to give you the skills that you need, but your needs that you have to be fulfilled for connection and relationship and that sort of stuff continues with the person. You probably end up with a better product. So long as the people aren't doing dumb shit when you're not there, (laughs) which I guess is part of your education piece. Well, and it's, it's a lot harder for clients to tell you half truths when you're in that house every day. Mm -hmm. Like if I let the dog out of the crate and he runs and jumps on the sofa, but you're telling me he's not allowed on the sofa. 
mm, I'm not going to buy it. Mm-hmm. Or if something as simple as like some dogs that have had some crane anxiety issues, I walk into the house and all it takes me is to see, okay, well, that crate shouldn't be where it's at for X, Y, or Z reasons. Let's move it over here. And all of a sudden crate anxiety is solved. Mm-hmm. Right. That it was simply a location issue. I have found that the clients are being way more honest that, you know, if I have them doing hand feeding for a certain reason that I can tell if I went away for the weekend and that dog was giving perfect eye contact for hand feeding and doing its puppy push ups without any hand signals. And I come back and it's almost like restarting over on Monday. You didn't practice. Mm-hmm. I find that people are being held more accountable. Like they're more willing to do the work and it might be because it's in their home. Cause I can tell you right now, my Friday lessons are so much easier than they ever used to be. When I was at the kennel, you know, one is trying to balance. How do you fit in 10 to 20 lessons every week with the clients before they take their dog home for the weekend. But it was also all of a sudden, well, I can't get off of work until five. The soonest I can be there is seven o'clock. So my Fridays were 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., sometimes 8 p.m. Whereas now when I'm in their home on a Friday, all of a sudden they can take a half day and they'd love to have a lunchtime meeting with me and then have the rest of their day off. Mm -hmm. So they've become so much more flexible because I'm in their house. So even on a Friday, it's I think in three years with this business, I've maybe gotten home at six twice. Nice. If people don't want me in their house at six o'clock at night on a Friday evening, they want me out so they can have dinner and start drinking and having their weekend. Yeah. So it's, it's also made my Fridays a whole heck of a lot easier. And so one of the things you said was you have, it's a three week program. What would be a trigger for you to make that a longer program? What would cause that? You know, I've actually never made it longer right off the bat. Okay. What I have done is. If I see something isn't quite getting where I want it to be, whether it's in week one, week two, or rounding week three, I'm very honest with the clients. But I tell one, the way I'm booked out, I don't have room to take you on for a fourth week. Mm. But then it's also Mm. two is I find it important for there to be a break then. And I can say, okay, let's take some time. I want you to keep practicing. And they still have access to me through text message, phone calls, and emails. But let's find where the real weakness is. Like, let's remove me from the picture. You all keep practicing. And is it simply because the dog is getting the level of consistency it needs from me? And you all aren't able to reach that. So the dog's giving you a harder time for it. Then that means I need to spend more time with the human and not necessarily more time with the dog. Or is it just that maybe that three weeks we've hit what that dog is capable of doing in that time frame? And that everybody in the house needs a break at that point. They mm-hmm. keep working on what we've worked on, give it a month, maybe two, depending on how far out I'm booked, and then we can come back for more training. I also have a high percentage of my dogs that come through as puppies that then come back after six months of age to do e collar and off leash training. Mm-hmm. So, quite a few of my dogs will end up, most of them, if they've done puppy training, quite a few of them will come back and end up doing another two to three weeks for e-collar training. That's cool. From a business perspective, you get to sort of tap people twice there. And I get to know the people that even if they want it off leash, if they can't follow through with the basics, Mm. they've already proven to me that I don't want to put an e-collar in their hand. Yeah, perfect. So it allows me to really get to know them so I can be picky. And look, if they go down the road and they go to somebody else who's willing to do it 
and goes against my recommendation, that's, I can't stop them from that. But if I don't think they can handle the responsibility and use the tool properly, they're not getting it from me. Yeah. It keeps your conscience clear. That's, that's awesome. There was something that I learned in BJJ a while ago that really woke me up. I love all these little things that you pick up along the way in different disciplines that you sort of make your way through life. And somebody once said to me when I was rolling with somebody on the ground and I got up and I was just exhausted. Like my heart rate was pounding. You know, I had a headache from how hard I was trying and how much effort I put in. It wasn't the black belt. It was just one of the guys who was sitting on on the side. And I went up and leaned against the wall and he said, mate, can I give you a bit of advice? I said, sure. And he goes, don't use any more energy on your opponent than they're using on you. And I thought, holy shit, you know, that was one of those really lightning moments. A light bulb really went on my head. And it was an interesting concept because I had to find that out when I was doing private lessons in home, which I don't do a lot of these days, but I was doing in-home consults with people. And I thought, why am I giving people far more effort than what they need or that they will use? Again, it was something that I thought I needed to do. It was something that was sitting well with my ego at the time. I kept thinking, I have to do more. I have to give them so much. And I have to tell them, you need to do this and you have to do this. But that was turning clients away. I was losing more clients than I was gaining because they were feeling guilty that they would never measure up to what I wanted them to do. And again, that was part of my obsession at the time. Like I kept thinking, no, 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 you have to do this. You have to be on this. And I don't want to see any less than this when I come back for the lesson next week. Now, mum and dad Smith, they don't want any of that. They just want a dog that's going to do the elementary work for them. Come back, stay in position, sit down, do a couple of, uh, of the things. But they want the dog to do that well and really nothing else. And I would try and suggest things after a period of time. I'd say, okay, I understand what you want. I've actually sat back and I've listened to you rather than just talking to you. You know, that's a major difference for anyone that's listening, just talking at people and actually sitting back and opening your ears and listening to what people want and what they really need. And once I found that, I found that I wasn't scaring clients away. I was actually getting more attraction from clients. Like people were saying, you know, like he's listening and he's getting results and he's doing this and that because the things that were important to them, yeah, sure, they weren't important to me. But that's your business model and that's what you really need to sit down and focus on. Right. And I think it's, you know, trainers developing a level of flexibility Mm. is that, you know, if I, let's say for my own personal dog, for Mongo, if I tell him sit, I want to sit. If I tell him down, I want to down and I don't want him to pop into a sit from his down and I don't want him to go from his sit to a down. But my pet clients could care less. Mm. So I'm not going to make, I can't tell them to be that strict because then they're going to feel like they failed. So if for them, it's you're out walking, you know, fluffy and you stop to say hi to a neighbor and you put fluffy in a sit and the conversation drags on and she lays down, I'm perfectly fine with that. If you are, is at least she's just being polite and not jumping on your neighbor and that sort of thing. And once I became more flexible with that, with my clients, I did get a higher rate of compliance from them or something as simple as I teach a climb command. Other trainers call it a place command or whatever. I will change my word to suit my client. So if you had no history before, you've never trained your own pet dog before, you've never known what a place command is, and I come into your house, then we're using climb because you don't have a word that you've previously used. But if you've taught place to your last three pet dogs, which one is that client going to be more consistent with? 
if I teach their dog place with just the same rules that my climb has? Or are they going to keep telling their dog place? I mean, climb, I mean, and fudging it up. So for me, there's times where if they're like, oh, well, can we use this word instead? Sure. Say tomato for all I care, as long as you're consistent with it. Mm. You know, it was funny listening to you talking about that. I was doing a, a consult not long ago with a lady from Pasadena. I was Zooming with her and I was showing her Randy in the backyard and I was doing some things with him. And she just kept saying, honey, honey, that's lovely. It's beautiful. I'm really appreciating it. She goes, all I want is my dog not to be an asshole. And I just said, <laughs> okay. And again, you know, like I was thinking, oh, this is me projecting what I think is important. But she said, I'll never do half of the stuff that you're showing me with your dog. Like, it's not important to me. And I thought, sure. And then I thought, maybe I just need to sit down in a chair and listen to you. And I said, okay, show me your dog and show me what we're doing and what's important to you. And she went through it and we just went through some, you know, two or three basic life skills. And she's happy now. You know, we did three lessons. That was it. If she's getting what she needs to do out of it. And I said, well, there's some good trainers in your area I can send you to if you if you want to do a face-to-face with somebody and, you know, sit down when Rona starts to subside a little bit. And that was issue was that coronavirus was subjecting her to a nomad lifestyle. But, yeah, she's getting what she wants. She's happy. Personally, that's one of the things I, I love about the position I'm in currently with all my clients that are sort of on the go is – I'm usually the one being like, stop, mm. <laughs> too much, or, or like, just slow down. This dog, he's, he's only eight, he's only six months old. He's not ready for this yep. yet or whatever. Like, I, I'm so blessed to be in that position rather than like when I was dealing with pet dog people all the time and it was like, same deal. You just turn up and you can see they haven't done any of the work that you've been telling them and they've got all these excuses and they're real excuses. they got they got shit going on. The dog's mm. just a small part of their life. Because I love dealing with the people who are like, no, this is going to be the world champion dog and I'm doing this and I, I get to like pull the reins back and be like, whoa, whoa, just slow down. Like, let's do this. And that. it's a total opposite. And it's so much more fulfilling when you have the really super motivated clients. It's, and, and, you know, you, you don't get to choose those. You, you sort of end up working the people you ended up, but mm. it's been fantastic for me. Well, and I think that's a good point though, too, like is that you found what you like in how you're training. Yeah which fits a niche, right? Versus like, and that's part of being happy and not getting burnt out is saying, okay, what do I want for the clients that I work with? And like, I, there's a really good trainer here that I recommend for aggression cases that God love her. That's what, that's what she wants to do. And I don't. So it's making her happy to be able to work with aggressive dogs. So I think that's where it comes that we don't have to take on every single case when you get to a certain point, it's good to be able to be choosy. Yeah. The only thing, you know, to speak really honestly about the work that I do with people and, you know, most of my clients are listening. It's how they end up being clients is the one thing I miss about dealing mostly in sport and working dogs at the moment is I don't really get to handle the dogs because the people aren't like, like with pet dog training, when I was doing a lot of that, I was training a lot of the dogs, right? Mm. Because that's how it is. You're there to be the dog trainer and you can train the dog to do the things and then you do the handover with the people. And I really enjoy training dogs. It's kind of, you know, it's like what I do. Right? <laughs> but now it's very rare that I ever do the training of the dog because when people, it's a working dog or a sport dog or whatever, like they are the one that wants to compete with it. And me taking over and being like, no, 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 do it like this is seldom helpful. It actually is, you know, usually creates a problem doing that. And so 
that's the one aspect of what I do that I, I dislike is that I am seldom the handler of the dog. And especially as a decoy, you know, like, you know, if I'm catching bites for someone and you can see them sort of doing stuff and you're like, no, 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 do this. And they're like, shut up, I'm employing you to catch the bites. You're here to work the grip. And you're like, no, but there's this other issue. And they're like, that's not my issue. They're like, no, it is. I'm telling you it is. Like, And especially when it's something I know I could fix really quickly or, or, or change really quickly. And it that's the only frustration I face in my current is that I'm not the hands-on trainer so much. I'm teaching other people. But, I mean, I still love it. It's still great. But that's what I miss about training pet dogs is actually, you know, getting to play with the dog more and being like, who are you? How do I manipulate you? How do I I reinforce you? Whereas now it's kind of like they tell me and I'm like, oh, yeah, turn this way. Oh, yeah, got it. Sweet, got Hearing you talking about that, that's one of the fun things that we get to do on the NDTF is only this week, the last group that we just finished with the year, we were training with some dogs and one of the clients, uh, sorry, one of the students said, do you think that this is a problem that we're doing these behaviors? And I said, this is far more than the owners of these dogs will ever do. Mm. Like this is all bonus work for them. And I said, and who cares? And I said, there's no harm, no foul. I said, these dogs are getting to live their best life with us. And then they go home and they live their best life with their owner. Yeah. I said, this dog just really dreams of being a couch potato because that's what it's been raised as. And I said, and we're doing all these shaping and chaining skills with the dog, which it'll probably never use again. Like we tell the clients what they're doing and we take pictures and videos and, you know, Kana and Kristen will send them a bunch of stuff and saying, you know, this is what Glenn and the students or we did with the dog. And they'll go, oh, that is so cool. I'm never going to use it. Yeah. And we just think, (laughs) but but it doesn't matter, right? Because if I'm curious about something, I can go down now, walk into the kennel, I can pull 10 dogs out right now and I can play with people's dogs. They don't care. I can go out and take them in the sheds and do things. And often if I'm that curious about it, I'll go and do it. You know, like I'll think, well, I can't do that with my own dog because that'll cause a problem in the behavior that I'm training or it doesn't have the constitution to do it. So I'll walk down the line. I'll go, "Mm, you, you and you. And I'll take the dog out in the shed and I'll play with them. And I'll think, okay, cool. Now I know what I need to teach on the course next week. And now I know what, you know, is available in certain criteria of some dogs that I'm going to do it with. And I have the luxury to be able to do that. And that's really, it is, it's good fun to be able to do that because, you know, there's times where I just think I can't do that with Randy because it's going to ruin this or it's going to cause a problem with this or pixels not capable and ladybugs broken. And, you know, like I've, I've got all these little issues that are, not compatible with what I want to do, but I've got between 60 and 200 dogs. So best of both worlds, really. That's what I think is interesting about, sometimes I have these conversations with people with PhDs, right? And mm. and they really know their shit. It's very technical and it's very, you know, like they obviously, they've got a PhD in behavioral science, right? But what they don't have is the laboratory that us as trainers have, yep. where you can just be like, I'm just going to do this and see what happens, right? And and they never do that because to do an ex- a real experiment, there's all these control mechanisms, blah, blah, blah. And that's how you get real data that you can disseminate. Yep. But for using yourself where it's just anecdotal stuff, you can just be like, I'm going to train this dog this way and see what happens. And halfway through, you can go, I'm never doing this again. Mm. (laughs) Or you can go, this is the best thing ever. Every dog's getting a component of this from here. And you get to experiment way more than any theorist ever does. And especially, as you say, with you here, you've got 200 dogs every day you can go and choose from to do it. It's It's a lot of fun. But again a lot of work in the meantime. I don't want people to listen to this and just think that's all I do all the time because, you know, there's some weeks that I don't get to do that at all. You know, like I don't even get to see a dog. I'm just doing business stuff. But when I do get to do it, like when I'm thinking about things that I've got to do for the NDTF or I want to refresh myself in something, it is quite refreshing to be able to diversify and think, 
cool, I've got any dog down there and none of the clients are worried if I get their dogs out. Like for them, it's an absolute bonus that their dog gets extra stimulation time and I take it in the shed and I'm not doing anything untoward to their dog anyway. You know, like it's all beneficial and it's mostly play and shaping sort of games that I'm doing with them. But I just get to do stuff and and I'm by myself and there's no interruptions. There's no phone calls. There's nobody asking me questions or stopping me midway to say, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? What's that for? What's this for? It's just me, the dog and silence. You know, I don't even take my phone in there half the time because I just think I just want to concentrate on this. And then that's it. I'd put the dog back in the kennel. I think "Mm, that worked or that was terrible. And as Pat said, I think, you know, I'm not going to go back to that again or think, no, that's what I'm going to teach next week where I'm going to talk about this because I've got to take three dogs out and it worked really successfully for three dogs. Yeah. And that is an aspect of the kennel. I will say that is an aspect of the kennel that I do miss. Mm-hmm. I mean, with having that many dogs around is the amount of, I mean, we ran a huge daycare, right? Where there was at any given time, six groups of 12 to 20 dogs playing separately. So like you did get to learn a lot about body language and just, you know, like the dogs that someone would say was aggressive, but you could walk by and be like, no, nah, he's just cage brave. Open the door. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Mm. So I do miss that. I don't have my hands on as many dogs, but I wouldn't go back. Like <laughs> not now. <laughs> so I think, you know, as we've covered throughout the hour and a half that your model there is a lot less work, a lot higher quality and you're way more sustainable. You're, you'd be able to do this for the rest of your life, right? You're not burning yourself out. You have a great work-life ratio and it's hardly like you're, it's not complex, right? This is a pretty easy sort of thing that you're doing here and like in, in explaining it, it's not like there's some huge backend system people have to put into place before they can just start doing this. As we discussed earlier, the idea was you wanted to sort of share that with everybody and say like, hey, you, you don't have to, you don't need to be breaking your back every day. This is a system. It works for you. People can replicate it. Mm. Right. And let's face it, like, I mean, dog training is a physical job. So I, there was no way I was going to be able to maintain the level of dogs that I was working at into my 40s and 50s and 60s like that it just that physically would not have been possible Mm. but mentally there was no way my mental health could have withstood that for much longer and then and it's the homeschool program is one of those that it may not work for everybody but it can also be tweaked like I've talked to so many people about the program but you know some now are only doing it three days a week some are doing it for two of the dogs that they work with and then sticking to private lessons for everything else so it's not the end all be all by any means. It works really, really well for me, but it's also something that can easily be tweaked to suit different people, their lifestyles and their wants and needs. Mm. Yeah. Good call. I think part of a good fun in, in a job, and this is something that I've had to realize myself is when you get to a spoilt position to be able to diversify between the things that you have to do, but also the things that you want to do as well. Like for example, Something that's just started happening more recently, which was interesting, is people around the world are starting to contact me about kennel design, you know, like how do you do this and and staff training and so forth. Like even people have said to me, you know, like when all this coronavirus starts to slow down, could we get you over to train our staff or do this or, you know, like walk through a kennel design with me or something like that? And I thought, uh, what are they asking me this for? And then I'm realizing 
because I'm the GM of a group of companies who runs major boarding kennels and I train staff and do all this sort of stuff as part of my job. I'm thinking I never thought of this as a part of an aspect of something else you can do that takes you into different areas. So sometimes people that I've spoken to feel that they're locked into a portion of their life. But you can, as you said, you can tweak things, you can diversify. You don't have to look at it from just one trajectory and think, that's it, I'm stuck. Again, I've got out of a job where I painted myself into a corner, only to be in another job where I've painted myself into a corner. It's good that you can look at things and think, you know, like I look at Pat with the things that he's enjoying doing. And, you know, he still gets time to be a dad to rip. And he also gets time to work with a lot of people with complex sporting cases and, you know, like high level, high energy type of dogs. And he's really enjoying that and really flourishing from that. And, you know, it's nice to see. It's nice to see that people are still oozing passion, you know, like they've got things that they can give to people and they're so enthusiastic about that. And it's important to remember for everybody when you're doing your job, like you've been talking about aspects of, of burnout. And I've experienced that before where I just wanted to run away from all of it because I thought I don't want to, you know, like there was career jobs that had nothing to do with dogs when I was getting out of school. And I thought, you know, this sounds like an interesting job. And I thought, no, I hate it. And then I got into dogs and I absolutely love dogs, but there's still things in the dog industry that if you're not careful, it'll crush the, the heart in your chest. You know, like you'll invest so much into it and it, you will find yourself painted into a corner. And it's very important to step back every now and then and think I need to have a life that's productive around dogs. And again, you mentioned it well and truly before, and we have on the show before, is the importance of people like Birdie, that she can come in every now and then and remind you, slow down, smell the roses, you know, get back to nature. Remember that, you know, like you are a spiritual person as well, and you do need to stop and and take a little rest yourself. And again, to sound corny, you need to remember yourself no more one more time. You've got to say to yourself, I am hitting rock bottom at the moment because I'm pushing myself too far too soon. I really do need to have a little break from it. Come back fresh so I can give all of myself, not just a really shitty version of myself to the people who are paying me good money to do it. I think that's important for, you know, it's been important for me to listen to my own advice and also the advice of other people who are, you know, sages in those sort of fields as well. That's the big thing is it's being able to realize that if we're not at our best selves, we're not going to be able to help people as much as we want to. Mm. And we owe it to the dogs and the clients that we're working with to try to be our best selves. And so, and sometimes that means taking a break and walking away or cutting back hours or finding another passion that isn't dog. Mm. Good advice, guys. Hey, Mel, I'm going to wrap it up. Yeah. How can people get in contact with you? There's a few layers of why they would want to do that, right? So maybe people in Ashland, Virginia, want some lady to come in their house and train their their dog. <laughs> uh, or maybe people want to talk IACP or maybe they're a member of the IACP and they, they want to just, just tell the pres how it is, right? <laughs> like how can people how can people get in contact with you? What what's your info? So through the IACP, if it's anything IACP related, there's a link to my email address through the website canineprofessionals.com, which is a lot easier than saying my email address is melanie.benware at caninprofessionals.com. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not the person they need to talk to, if it's something to do with legislative or you know European members committee, I will send them to the director oversight of that area. But I'm more than willing to talk to people, even if you're not a member and you just have questions, I'm always happy to talk about the IACP to people. 
if you're looking for, if you want to reach out and learn more about the homeschool program, my email address is melanie.benware at kindredcaninesolutions.com. And so and it's my website and my business are all Kindred Canine Solutions. Perfect. And one last time, let's plug the IACP itself. If you're listening to us, please, please, you should be a member, professional or affiliate. We really want to grow that organization mm. for the strength of the organization, right? There's no one getting rich off of it. Everybody work, is working hard in the background and we really want to support uh, the industry, but the trainers and I think it's important for everybody to remember that the cornerstone of IACP is, is in education. We're not the e-collar fighting organization it's education that's the main key it's part better it. life for dog owners and dogs yes. across the globe yes all right that's it well thanks for making the time thanks for doing it thanks for just laying out your business model for everyone to copy <laughs> happy to do it if it means it helps more dog trainers and trainers to be able to stay in the industry longer and help more dogs i'm all for it sounds good hey that's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. Be specific. Tell us about how the homeschool program is going for you. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is Patreon. A few bucks a month gets your extra episode in there. Mm. And it's Christmas, so uh, if you want to buy us a Christmas present, Patreon. That's true. If yeah. you do want to buy us a Christmas present, feel free to do that. Yeah. <laughs> you can support us through Patreon. Don't hold back. Yeah. The other thing you could do is buy a ridiculous wall tapestry. Why ridiculous? Why? Why? <laughs> or throw rug. <laughs> do we do the throw rugs? Yeah. Or bandana? Or t-shirt? No, we're going to. We're going to. We're going to add okay. them in. All right. So you could do those things if you want to. I don't know why you would, but if you want to support the show, you could definitely do that. Do Mel we Mel make Melanie smiling? What she got? She went. She bent down to pick something up, and she's got. Do you something. have a wall tapestry? <laughs> no, I do not. I have not had a wall tapestry since I was in college. Do we make more off of a wall tapestry than a t-shirt? What's our cut on the wall tapestry? Uh, I have to look at that to be honest. <laughs> Maybe we should really start driving people to these wall tapestries. We make- I'm going to get one though for our shed out there, so yeah. we can have one. Maybe even one for the backdrop behind us, so it's not I just was a picture. Say of- right behind you. Well, yeah. you know, when people are doing Skype and Zoom with us, they get to see this lovely hand painted picture of chaos that my friend David Oakley did. Yes. Hmm. It's um, a really nice painting. It's a yeah. lovely painting. It's a it's a yeah. dog I bred when I was breeding Rottweilers. This is chaos. I have to post a photo of it now. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So get yourself a wall tapestry. If you want dog training advice, best way to do that is in the group. Feel free to join the Canon Paradigm discussion group on Facebook. There's plenty of conversations going on mm. in there. Don't be scared of using the search function and seeing if your question's already been asked a bunch of times. I did something similar to that in a non-dog related group and I found the answer. Can you believe that? I didn't have to ask the the question that I wanted to ask. And then get the, I just, why didn't you search? Yeah, no, I did search and I found the answer. It was amazing. Very I could, good, Mr. Stewart. So I got to watch someone else get berated for mm-hmm. the stupid question yeah, I was right. going to ask. Isn't that always fun? Yeah. From, just from, think, fuck, from I eight months ago. There. Yeah, from eight months ago where mm. I was going to ask a stupid question and I was like, yep. no, someone else has asked yep. this stupid question. So don't be afraid to do that. And if you would like to get in contact with us, you can do that. We are info at thecanonparadigm.com. That's it. Goodbye.